Finding God in Unexpected Places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Hey friends, this is Jason Elam. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. I love the conversations that we have here, and I hope you do too. But you know what I like even more than listening to the interviews on the podcast? I really love the conversations we're having on the Messy Conversations group over on Facebook. It's a safe, secure, private group where you can talk about your doubts and your struggles and faith and religion and all of life in an atmosphere free from judgment and full of love and respect. I would love for you to join the Messy Conversations group over on Facebook. You can find a link to it in the show notes for this episode, and I hope you'll join us there. Also, please check out our Patreon page. You'll also find a link to that in the show notes for this episode. It's patreon.com slash Jason Elam writes, W-R-I-T-E-S. That is where you can sign up to be our patron on Patreon. We could not do this podcast without the 25 supporters who have committed $1 a month or more to supporting the work of this podcast through Patreon. For each giving level, there are specific reward tiers. You can get everything from early access to each new episode of the podcast, all the way up to free copies of my forthcoming book, just for you. Uh, We are publishing articles just for our patrons on Patreon. We are also about to start releasing videos that will be specifically produced just for the patrons of this podcast on Patreon. So would you check that out? Patreon.com slash Jason Elam writes and make a pledge. It's just automatically drafted every month. You can cancel any time and there's certainly no hard feelings about that, but I would love to have your support. It makes it possible for us to do what we're doing and we honestly could not do it without you. Thanks for listening. Enjoy this episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. My guest today is a Southern California boy living life in the low country of Charleston, South Carolina with his wife, Abby, and his boxer, Jackson. A husband, Bible student, film buff, and hopeful theologian, Chris loves fast-paced theological discussion, great films, good bourbon, and a nice cigar. His passions include social justice, rediscovering the church's prophetic voice, and spiritual formation and contemplation. He's currently working on a book and formulating a podcast with his good friend, Derek Myers. Welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, Chris Harmon. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Man, I am so excited to talk to you. I've just known you a little bit on social media, but what I've seen, I really love. And I hear this word ragamuffin from you occasionally, and that just does something inside of me. It feels like a Brennan Manning vibe that kind of uh, connects so many of us that identify by that term. And I'd love to explore that with you further. But before we get into that, tell me about your family life growing up. What was life like for you when you were young? Yeah, totally. So um, I grew up in a, a pretty... I mean, it was, it was a conservative Christian environment. Um, I grew up in Southern California, uh, in a town called Thousand Oaks. It's funny if you go look it up on urban dictionary, the number one definition, or at least last I looked, was, uh, the town where rich white conservatives go to die. Um, and so very, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like the, the, <laughs> what a thing for a town to be known for. Oh, I know. It's always the bad things that it's in the news for too, which I, I think is, it, I mean, it's not funny because it's where I'm from, but right, it, yeah. it, it, there's, they're never there for, for good reasons, unfortunately. But that was kind so of it's I like mean, the that, Colorado Springs of Southern California. Yeah, very, very much so. Very conservative. I think we've had a pastor as mayor for, or we had him for a, a while. I know that much, but we, 
it's very the faith and and government very much intersect very much grew up in that kind of environment where that was not only looked to as a good thing but it was also this is the way it's supposed to be my 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 home life wasn't i mean it, compared to a lot of other people i know it it wasn't bad but my parents were very much so cultural christians i met a youth group or a youth pastor in high school who really challenged me to kind of dive into my faith and uh my parents kind of being a, a little bit a little bit more complacent because of the environment they were in they didn't really like that um it also later came out that my mom was a was a closeted alcoholic from the time i was 12 to time i was 20 um so uh, there was there was definitely a a, a heavy my, my childhood's kind of a heavy story but all through that was super involved in my church youth group was in student leadership did a gap year program emphasizing on discipleship and spirituality after high school that that's kind of my background like i've i've been in the church my whole life i've i've been a christian since i was uh 15 so it's been 8 years now that's weird to say but but yeah so that, that's kind of my background is kind of a church kid i guess <laughs> so you mentioned your mom being kind of a closeted alcoholic i i guess that she must have been highly functioning alcoholic is that right uh yes and no she 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 had some medical problems while while I was in high school and she was on medication that we knew was she was going to have some bad reactions to so she was kind of able to mask some of her more um intense stupors from us under the guise of the medication she was on but I mean I knew it I don't know if, if it was a holy spirit thing or or what it was but I I vividly remember going into her room sometimes and and having her kind of berate me or whatever being like something's wrong here. Like this isn't, <laughs> this isn't my mom. And, uh, I was always kind of the, the, the trouble child for doing that. Um, and looking back now, it's, it, it, it was kind of one of those prophetic moments where I think the Lord was trying to use me to bring my house back together. But, uh, it, it, it was kind of stifled in that. What was church life like for you at that young age? What kind of faith did you grow up believing in? So the so the guy that that shared the gospel with me for the first time, or he he introduced me to Jesus for the first time. He uh, he was a student of uh, Eternity Bible College, which is a small Bible college in Southern California, started by Francis Chan uh, with Cornerstone, which is where now I'm a I'm a distant student distance education student. And he went on to go to Bethlehem College and Seminary, which is John Piper's school. So not, I don't want to say like reformed, but it was very much evangelical. And I think later on, definitely more so reformed. After he left to move on to seminary, the the youth group was taken over by someone who was very heavily involved with um, with John MacArthur's whole movement. So very masters, grace community kind of environment. So I, my, my theology kind of went from like semi hopeful, charismatic, evangelical to reformed to uh, evangelical fundamentalist, which I mean, it, 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 and because of my family environment, it was just, that was just kind of the community I had. So it was like, uh, I, I kind of just absorbed all of that and, and brought it into myself. So anything that that cultural identity took place that that was the identity I put on myself. So if I was learning this, this was this was me now. So talk to me specifically about the God you believed in during that phase of your life. What was God like? Oh, sure. Um, I mean, he was uh, God and Jesus were kind of these these two separate 
concepts. I mean, no one, no one would ever like flat out say that to you, but it was like, oh, well, like God's mad at you, but like in Christ, like he's not. And it, it's like, but like Jesus and God are the same person. So like, I, and I didn't have the, the, the common sense to ask that question, but it was very much so angry God, but it's all good. Cause Jesus kind of came and, and squashed the beef between God and, and you so that you could be cool with him. And so very like heavy, uh, penal substitutionary atonement, very, I require sacrifice. Like I'm a wrathful King. And it's kind of this, the, it, it was very much like the evangelical upbringing of, of, yeah, Jesus came and said all these nice things, but one day he's going to come back and, and everyone's going to either die or bow. And those that don't are going to be, and some of those that do are going to be sent to hell forever. Um, so that was kind of the, the upbringing that I had for, and that wasn't like blatantly taught, but that's kind of what you're, you're led to believe through both, both uh, narrative and both through outright teaching. So what did that doctrine, how did that inform your beliefs about yourself? What did you believe about Chris during that phase of your life? Oh, man. Um, well, I believed that, that change in theology was, was compromise. I believed to stray from, from the true faith of, uh, of like fundamental of the faith kind of uh, thinking was, uh, was to compromise something. I think it taught me that, that my experience didn't matter. My emotions didn't matter. All that really mattered was being faithful to this book, which in some ways, like I still kind of believe, but, but in, in a different way, but it, it was very much so total depravity. I was totally depraved. Anything that was going on in my life, God not only was behind and allowing, but he also ordained and was somehow like putting me through hell in, in certain circumstances, but it was for the sake of, of my good or he, he was causing it. And, and so that was kind of how I viewed myself was I was just kind of like this, this uh, depraved play toy, if you will, for God to just kind of do whatever you want to do. Cause he's God, you know, many of us kind of reach a point where we uh, realize that the faith passed down to us or the faith we have absorbed in that youth group, like you were talking about just isn't working for us anymore. Did you have a point like that in your life? Oh yeah. Um, well, it's crazy because like I said, the, this, this culture was kind of my only, uh, social identity in a lot of different ways. Uh, during that gap year program that I did after high school, I kind of, my eyes really opened. I stopped reading only John MacArthur and, and David Platt and Paul Tripp and started reading people like Dallas Willard and, uh, and so, and Richard Foster and then people like that. And so my, my mind was kind of being molded. Like my, I don't even know when my deconstruction started to be completely honest with you, but I kind of came to this point where I realized, Oh, like orthopraxy matters just as much, if not more than orthodoxy. So why are these people so apathetic? And like, why is the Nashville statement a thing? And why is why is John MacArthur releasing a statement on social justice in the gospel? That's ridiculous. Like that, those two things kind of go hand in hand. But as I got more vocal, this community kind of started getting ready to, to give me the ax. But it wasn't until my wife came into the picture when we were dating these, this community still tried to keep a pretty firm, firm grip on us because I mean, these people were my family and, and I think they, ha they did have the best intentions. So I don't really look down on them for it, but it kind of came to a point where my wife was, who is really good 
at telling people no and saying and not submitting to situations that she feels are abusive or manipulative, recognized the situations that we were being subjected to as both and said, you know what, I'm not interested in this anymore. And But they kept trying to plant seeds of division in me along the way to the point where they they kind of tried to ruin our wedding day in a lot of ways. Um, oh they, my goodness. Tell me about that. Oh man, <laughs> that's going to be a long story. Um, there was a serious level of narcissism in, in one of the, the people involved in, in this community who was really close to Abby. And obviously we're having this wedding backyard wedding, Southern California. And we had, we had worked our, our butts off to, to make sure that this backyard looked nice. We, we had helped set up for the wedding because obviously like, these people opened their homes to us. We had the wedding free of charge. We want to do whatever we can to make it look nice. Then the week of the wedding rolls around and I'm California born and raised. The, we- the day after we got married, I jumped in a car with Abby. We drove across the country and came here. I had never really been outside of California, at least living wise. Uh, so it was, it was very surreal. All my friends coming to say goodbye and, and celebrate my, my life and our marriage and but so it was a really surreal like all these memories hitting me so i i was not very present and then abby's family was in town and they had never been to california with us and so we're trying to share our life with them and i think somewhere along the line either something was lost in communication or it was just this person just was not having it and so it it kind of turned into just this gossip pit where anyone that was involved in that community was being told that Abby and I were being selfish, that Abby and I didn't actually do anything to help set up the wedding. And these people kind of just took them at their word and and would make these passive aggressive comments to, to Abby would make these passive aggressive comments to me, to Abby's bridesmaids, like Abby's bridesmaids refused to go into the house to get ready because of how nastily they were being treated. Um, so Try to try to destroy the wedding, basically, and then we get followed all the way across the country with these text messages of like, "You left this wake of division. You need to reconcile." And I'm thinking, because I wasn't really there for most of it, so I'm thinking, "Oh my gosh, like I I gotta figure out how to fix this." And so I talk to one of the people just one on one. We try to settle it. We thought we did, and then all four of us, the the main people involved, Abby, myself, and and these two other people sit down and and we're on the phone getting just reamed for an hour and Abby's crying I'm crying and we didn't even think we did anything wrong we're just like these people are our family we love them and we've made them feel so negatively like that that bothers us and so we're apologizing we're repenting we're owning it and then finally after I don't even know how long it felt like forever it comes time for Abby to kind of share how she was made to feel on her wedding day and it was just this yeah, well, you made me feel this way, so I don't really want to hear it. And 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 so we're both sitting there like, excuse me, like what? Uh, and so the the conversation kind of blew up in our faces because I at that point I was like, you, they they said something comparing us to another young married couple in that community. And I was like, you know what, this is ridiculous. Like I'm not even interested in this conversation anymore. And I got called arrogant and then the phone was hung up. And, uh, 
had one more conversation with them that basically entailed Abby had posted something about how she was hurt by that day, by that whole experience. I mean, it took a, like, I, I'm not kidding you, Jason. It took us months, like Abby, even longer to, 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 to kind of grieve everything that happened. And, and she needed to, she needed to express herself. And so she posted something. I was like, you know, she asked me about it. And I was like, I don't necessarily think that's a good idea, but like, if, if that is what helps you grieve this situation, go for it, do what you need to do. I get a phone call. that's basically like, you need to tell your wife to not do that. And, and so like at this point, like I've, like I grew up like quote unquote complementarian, but like more so like misogynistic was what I'd accuse it of. But, uh, at this point, like I'm, I'm pretty egalitarian and I'm like, I, my wife's her own person. Like, I'm not going to be like, Hey, you need to do this. And, and so that was kind of the last conversation we really had. And, and there was a lot of like spiritual stuff that happened after that. A lot of, uh, discernment that took place where we're like, you know, we need to just cut these people out. And so we did, and and we haven't talked to them, uh, since that day, but man, it was, it was rough. But I mean, that's, that's the short version of it. I could, that would take two and a half podcasts to tell you that whole story. But (laughs) well, in the end though, you're left without this community that you had really come to rely on. You called them your family a couple of times. So where did that leave you in the aftermath? Yeah, so existential crisis, like full on, like what is faith? What is life? What is God? What are all these things? And I'll never forget the night where I finally kind of gave up on everything but Jesus because, I mean, my family life was kind of not great and and I lost my church community. I was like, Jesus has really only ever been the only thing I've ever had. And so I was like, all right, uh, what would it look like for me to just kind of get rid of everything except for Jesus? And so it, it, I was thinking about that that week. And I remember hearing, um, or I remember reading an article. It was right after Rachel Held Evans passed away. And there was an article uh, in a very notorious, fundamentalist, uh, Breitbart-esque kind of uh, fundament- fundamentalist uh blog that I won't even name because it's not worth it. Um, just talking about how it was like the wrath of God and uh, called Nadia Bowles Weber, a bunch of really nasty names. And uh, it was just a really horrible article. Um, and I realized, even though this is gross, this is the end of this theology. Like this is the end of, of this mindset like the the fundamentalist i would even argue in some cases reformed mindset this is this is the end this is where this will end up um so i'm going to leave that now and i'm going to start listening to all these people that for five six years of my life i've been told are false teachers so it was like rachel held evans rob bell pns richard Rohr, greg boyd like every any anything i could get my hands on and i at this point i was working by myself um driving driving a truck not really having to have much conversation with people so i was listening to six seven lectures a day six seven interviews a day just digesting it and thinking about it and contemplating it so it a lot of people that i talked to their their situation went from just full-on nihilism and and deconstruction and they didn't get into the reconstruction stage until sometimes years later but i i can pretty confidently say like now i i am in that stage but man, it was hard. Like there, even now there are days, like even just yesterday, I was thinking to myself, like, am I wrong? 
Like if, what if, what if I am wrong? Like what if, what if I, I'm, I'm wrong? Like what if I am going to hell forever because of what I believe now? But then I'm like, Oh Jesus, Jesus is better than that. Like, no. Well, you know, we, we grow up being taught to be certain in so many areas of faith, right? And then we realize that some of the things we were told we should be certain about probably aren't true. And so then, you know, we try to adopt a new set of beliefs. But yeah, I think it's natural to to question that and wrestle with it. And I think there's a gift of uncertainty. I think in a way, it takes all the pressure off, you know? What if it's not about us being right about anything? What if God is good, you know? So during that season of your life, when you've lost your church family, you, you've got a very young marriage, you're, you're learning how to be married. How are you unpacking your theology of who God is during that time while you're listening to these podcasts? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think I kind of referenced to it earlier of this, uh, like God is angry at you, but in Christ kind of mentality, but it's like, all right, but, but Jesus is God. So what do you do with that? And so that was kind of where it really started for me. And, and the first big revelation to me was that God is like, Jesus is God. As silly as that sounds, like there's, there's kind of this like kind of conservative, Oh yeah, well, Jesus is God. But like, no, like Jesus is God. Like he is the, the radiance of, of the image of God. And so people like Brad Jerstack and Brian Zahn, the whole, like God looks like Jesus. We didn't always know that. Now we do kind of revelation just kind of hit me as, as hard as it possibly could. And so then that changed the way I read the Bible and that changed the way that I prayed and that changed literally everything. I think this far in my life, this far into my deconstruction, that is what kept me saying is just that, that like Jesus is God. And, and it, it's crazy to me, Jason, how, how the Bible makes so much more sense like that. I mean, there's so much that I'm not certain about, but it, it makes so much more sense when you read it from that lens and not that it has to make sense, but, but like, you don't, you don't have to wrestle with like the Canaanite genocide or some of the wrath of God portraits in, in, in the old Testament. Like it, it, it just kind of starts making more sense when you realize, Oh, well, uh, as, as Pete N says, God let his children tell the story. I love that Pete N's quote so much. Doesn't it just explain so much uh, that we get from the Old Testament. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's a it is such a burden lifted off my chest because that's always the the big question, right? It's like, well, if God's good, then why did the the Canaanite genocide happen? And you have people like, well, like it's spiritual warfare, it's the Nephilim, and you have some people that are like, uh, well, I mean, if God wants to kill people, we can kill people, which is just and and I used to be one of those people, so that's like, yeah, I did scary, too. scary, scary, scary. But man, it, it's such a it's such a weight off of your chest. And I I think I can't remember who was who I was talking to the other day, but they were saying that they were saying that God's not a God of confusion. So if you don't have certainty, then that's not from God. It's like, well, the opposite of certainty is not confusion. It's just not being sure. Like it, it's it's just kind of existing. Like that you don't have to know everything. Right. Absolutely. So how did getting this new image of God. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. We didn't always know that. Now we do. So you've got that. God is like Jesus. The New Testament revelation of Jesus in the Gospels, that's who God is. How does that change how you see yourself? Oh, man. I mean, there's so many different directions you could go with that, with with an answer to that question. I mean, I think 
I really leaned into the 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 Richard Rohr kind of before Genesis three, there was Genesis one that that things were good, and and that you are good, and so it, it just kind of it, it helped me to realize that I am loved, and and it's not some kind of conditional arms crossed. Oh, you you got to get your your ish together, Chris. Um, you gotta gotta get in your suit and tie and and bring your uh, English Standard Version Bible with a John MacArthur commentary to church every Sunday, and <laughs> and uh, be be in the be in the pews and have your hands raised and have Wayne Groom all highlighted up. Like it 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 just kind of takes all the pressure off you, which is crazy because that's kind of the 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 central Christian message. It's the the give like give me your burdens. Like it's not supposed to be a, a burdensome thing. I mean, obviously they're like. You're supposed to die to yourself, but the the walk with Jesus is not, it's not supposed to be some burdensome thing of like, let me give you all these systematic theology books and give me like a suit and give me a, a whatever you want to give me. It, it's just give me Jesus. And after that, it kind of just starts making sense. So did how, how did seeing yourself that way and learning to recognize God as being like the Jesus you see in the Gospels, how did that change the way that you express your faith? It made me a lot more patient. I think that was the biggest thing because I think before that, it was always this kind of, oh well, if if you don't have sound theology, like you better watch out, and if your friends are going down that path, you better start talking to them. Like I, I vividly remember sitting in a Bible study, and one of my friends was uh, talking about open theism, and to be fair to myself, he wasn't giving a great definition of open theism, um, and he shouldn't have been talking about open theism in that kind of environment. But I, I just called him out in front of everyone. And I went all like hyper Calvinist on, on him. And I'm actually really embarrassed by that of like, I was so quick to jump on people and so quick to be like, well, this is what's right. Like the Bible clearly says here, but it's just made me a lot more patient and it's given me the ability to sit down with so many more people and just be like okay like that's fine like you 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 think this like that's fine you you like trump okay like i don't but if you do like you can and that's just a a current example of of certain relationships that i have at work and and whatnot but right yeah i i think it was richard Rohr who said that one of the best signs of somebody's spiritual maturity is that they're able to see christ in everyone else and so I think when you're able to sit down with somebody who has very uh, opposing views to your own and still see the beloved child of God worthy of dignity and respect, man, that just changes the way we interact with the world. No, and that, and that's the thing. And I don't want to toot my own horn and make it sound like I'm I'm super good at it because, I mean, shoot, like they're – if you follow me on Twitter, there's some things that make me real mad. Like that <laughs> I'm not That happens to you too? <laughs> oh yeah. It's crazy. It's like that thing was designed to make people mad. Yeah. Um but I'm not perfect at it by any means, but I think that's kind of the the becoming more like Jesus way. It, it's you you kind of start to recognize the ways in which like how can I both be like Jesus and embrace this Christ nature that I've been given by the Holy Spirit and walk in that. Like, how can I, and, and you catch yourself and you, you recognize it and, and you move forward and you don't have to kick yourself like, Oh, you depraved worm. Like, how could you possibly 
get mad at your coworker or get frustrated on Twitter or, or whatever the, the conversation might be, but it, it, that it, I'm not perfect at it by any means, but that is genuinely what I desire to be able to be that person to, to, if I, if I had to, I, I hope I never have to, that would be the biggest, hardest thing ever of, of going into the national prayer breakfast and sitting through what happened today and just kind of being like, yep, Jesus is here. Like, it's fine. Like I shoot, I couldn't do it, but that, that's kind of the, <laughs> that's like the end goal. That's where I want to be one day. Your bio that we read earlier says that you're passionate about social justice. Now that is kind of a loaded term for a lot of people. What does the term social justice mean to you? So I think it, there's so, and you're absolutely right. There are so many different people that are touting social justice. Uh, and honestly, I, I mean, I've seen both sides of it. I've seen the the liberal side of it where it's just kind of like, let's just throw everything out. The the super liberal side, not liberal side. And then I've also, like, like I mentioned earlier, social justice in the gospel was something that came out. Uh, I don't know if you're, you're familiar with that statement, but if you ever want a, a good laugh or it might make you cry, I don't know. But it was, it yeah, was I remember of, it was heartbreaking. I mean, there were, there were these leaders who were like taking a strong stand against, you know, serving humanity with the gospel, being, you know, good news to the world, to the poor, to the hungry and associating that with the gospel. Right. Yeah. And that, that was the part. And if there, there were some things in there, it's like, you want to believe that whatever. But the one thing that really made me upset was the whole, we, we deny that. Uh, living a just life is contingent with uh, gospel salvation. It's like a, a just life is the gospel. Like the freedom to live a just life and the freedom to embrace a just life, like that is a, a key part of the gospel. So to walk away from that, at least in my opinion, that that is a walk away from the gospel. So you're not rejecting social justice there. You're just rejecting the gospel. But to I mean, to define social justice, it, it's it is it is at least from a, a Christian perspective, it it is partnering in the process of making all things new, of freeing the slave, and giving sight to the blind, and and feeding the hungry, and clothing the naked, and visiting the prisoner, like that. That is what social justice is about, and and social reform. Like I'm I'm I wish I could be more involved. I want to be more involved than I am right now as a, as a student and a and a husband and. As a, I work a full time job that's not related in in ministry or social reform, but man, like I I want to see the day where we do look at each other as as we are in the image of God, and and I think that's that's really what it's about at the end of the day is is recognizing the image of God that we are all in, and not only acknowledging it but living out of it and bringing it out of each other. Talk to us about the rediscovering of the church's prophetic voice. Where did we lose the prophetic voice as a church, and how do we find it again? So I, I think that a, a lot of where we lose the prophetic voice comes from the, the the theological movement of cessationism, where there's kind of the well, the gifts have ceased, and and one of those gifts is prophecy. And I and I also think a, another huge problem is is you you go into a lot of churches these days. And they, they'll read the prophets, but it's only ever in the context of, well, this is how they point to Jesus. It's never, well, this is how they pointed to the Israelites, or this is how they pointed to, or this is how it applies to us. It's it, We don't ever really talk about that Sodom and Gomorrah were burnt because they were inhospitable and they didn't uh, take care of the poor. Like we, we don't talk about 
the consequences of being greedy. We don't talk about the consequences of being uh, inhospitable. We don't talk about the consequences of, of, of hate. Like we, we just don't like, that's not why we go to the prophets. We go to the prophets to say, Oh, forget these books. It was all taken care of. It's fine. Hallelujah. We're good. And so we lost the prophetic voice when we stopped actually reading the prophets because the prophets, I mean, shoot, they have a lot to say about the way that we live today. I I just finished um, the prophets by Abraham Heschel. I don't know if you've ever read it. I haven't. I've heard of it and I hear it's fantastic. Oh, you, you've got to read it. It's, it's one of those books that it, the, the Jewish way of reading the prophets, it, it's so much more robust, robust and so much more profound than the evangelical way of reading the prophets because they actually read the prophets. It's crazy what happens when you actually read your Bible. But I, I think that's really where we lost our prophetic voices when we stopped taking the prophets seriously as both biblical authors and also as authoritative voices like we don't know how to speak truth to power anymore but then you see images of these prophets doing these crazy things like people talk about how people like uh shane claiborne or or hartgrove or or people like that are these radical crazy people but they have the the prophets walking around jerusalem naked or or whatever like you want to see radical like you go back and read your old testament like it's not radical to just sit there or i mean it is radical but it's just it's just weird. Talk to us about contemplation. What are your spiritual practices like today? How does contemplation serve you and your faith? So that's actually what I'm I'm writing a book on right now is uh, uh is is about spiritual practices. So the the premise of the book is kind of a a Richard Foster's celebration of discipline, but for 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 people who are going through the deconstruction process, and it, it's called redrawing the bath because I definitely see the the spiritual gifts as these things that we wash ourselves in and 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 things that make us holier in some ways but how contemplation kind of takes place in my life is i i have add i'm i have clinical depression i'm not very good at sitting alone with myself i've gotten better but contemplation really i i've i've made a very conscious effort to when i get to work and i get in my car to go do what I've got to do. I just sit in silence and then I'll listen to a podcast, but I make myself intentionally just kind of sit and acknowledge the presence and kind of just be there. Like I don't let myself talk. I don't let my mind wander kind of just sit in, in, in that space. And Jesus is sitting in my passenger seat and just kind of acknowledge that and, and acknowledge that he's also in me and he's in the car next to me and he's, he, he's everywhere. So just kind of sitting, sitting in that acknowledgement that, that Christ is in all. So how does, how has contemplation helped you? You mentioned having ADD. Now that's something that a whole lot of folks that I hear from are wrestling with. Some are just getting diagnosed. Some have been dealing with it their whole lives. What, recommendations do you have for using contemplation to help deal with that? I know you mentioned silence is key. Do you have anything beyond that? Um, I mean, silence is definitely key. If you can't do silence, that's totally fine. I think a lot of both in, in some charismatic circles and then also in, and I would say too, in, in the deconstruction circle, it's very easy to hear people like, Richard Rohr talk about his sits and be like, I want to do that. It's like, well, he's also been doing that for 
so much of his life. So you'll have 23 year olds that are trying to do like, and I've, I've tried and I can't. And, and so I, even if it's just 10 minutes, 10 minutes can turn into 20 minutes, 20 minutes can turn into 30 minutes. It's, that is why they call it a discipline is, is it, it takes time to perfect. But I also think, and, and I've, I've encountered people like this of, if you have to go on medication, like you have to go on medication. Like, I think that there was something, I don't know what it was. I don't know if, if you had this same experience, but in, in some evangelical circles, there was kind of this shame around medication that would help us psychologically. And so for a lot of people in, in a lot of Christian circles, it's like, oh, I want to pray more, but my, my mind's always just so scattered or I want to, I want to whatever, but my mind's always so scattered. Like, don't feel shame if you have to be on medication. Just, just do what you need to do. I think that that is the that is my contemplative rule. Is if if you need to be in your car, go be in your car. If you need to be in your closet, go be in your closet. If you need to be in the the bedroom, go be in the bedroom. If you need music, play music. If you need medication, be on medication. Like just kind of do what you need to do to be in a com- contemplative state. Because that's not it, it's there is no formula to it. There, there are some people that have, have lived before us that have done a really dang good job, but just because something worked for them doesn't mean that it's going to work for you. And just because it doesn't work for you doesn't mean that it's not going to work. Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. So many folks deal with shame over having to take medication. Listen, if a doctor prescribes you medication uh, for a real known problem that you've been wrestling with, absolutely take that. And don't let anybody shame you for that medication. But, you know, get alone, uh, listen to music, whatever it takes to, we all know what kind of unwinds us. We know what diffuses us. We know what helps the anxiety rather than increases the anxiety. And while the medication's doing its job, contemplation can be a partner with that. And Chris, I'm so glad that you mentioned that. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that is, I, I'm not on medication right now. I mean, for sake of transparency, I'm not. And, and it's something that I've thought about back and forth going back onto. But for now, I, the, the practice is, is working fine for me. And, and, and like you said, like it, it, or like we, we both said, it, it's kind of this thing that it takes time to develop. And, and so don't feel shame if like the, if you, if you have five minutes that you can give, like do it. And and don't be like, man, like I wish you could give more time. Just be in the presence and then walk away from from your contemplative time and still be in the presence. Like that I think that's what's beautiful about contemplation and what's been so beautiful about it for at least for me, is that I can sit in in kind of a divine presence for intentionally acknowledging it for five, ten minutes. But then if I walk away and don't sit in it for the rest of the day my days like then my then my contemplation didn't work because that's the whole point is you're supposed to acknowledge the things that are already around you gotcha hey tell me before we go today i want to talk to you about the podcast that you and Derek Myers are working on Derek is an incredible guy we talked to him just a couple of weeks ago and i am really excited about the podcast that you two are working on together tell us about that yeah, no, we're uh, we're working on a, a podcast called Iconoclast. The word it, it, it means someone who who confronts, attacks, and destroys religious symbols. Kind of the the idea that we had for it is all right. These are these images that we've made God into that have proved not 
A, not helpful, B, toxic, and C, untrue for Derek and I. And so our hope is to A, destroy those images and B, kind of reveal the, the, the Jesus that is behind them, if you will. What kind of a time frame do you have for releasing your first episode? Oh, I wish I could tell you, Jason. We're <laughs> we're working on it. It, it, it. It's it's very early stage development. We've been talking about it for months, but I mean, we're just both so busy that we're kind of taking our time getting ready. We'd like to say within like six months is what we're hoping. Hopefully before that, but we're we're working on it. So, Derek, if you're listening, uh, let's hurry up. <laughs> How about your book? You got a time frame for the book on contemplation? So I'm I'm working on a rough draft right now. I, I want to try to give it at least another nine months before I release it. If if I need it, I'll give it a year. I'm I'm writing about a chapter a week at this point, but I'm what I'm hoping to do because I really don't want to get stuck at some point and be like this is garbage and and go through all that mess and and just sit in one chapter and edit it for five years and never be happy with it. But I <laughs> that think sounds that, very familiar to me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my father-in-law just did that. He's coming out with a book too, uh, or he, he's, he's literally about to publish it, but he, he kind of had one of those moments where he, he'd come to Abby, Tracy and I, who Tracy's his wife, he'd be like, book's done. And we'd all be like, Oh, cool. Like, that's great. And then like three weeks later, he'd be like, Oh, I'm working on the book. And like, oh, okay. And then a week later, book's done. And then we're a little less excited than but that book's coming out. It's called uh, The Jesus Disruption by Daniel Grandstaff. Highly recommend it. Uh, don't know when exactly it's coming out, but he just sent it to publication last week. Awesome. Well, man, I'm really looking forward to your book and especially this podcast with Derek. It's been such a gift having a conversation with you today. I'm excited about what God's doing in your life. And uh, I look forward to great things from you in the future. How can our friends who are listening today engage with you in your work online? Yeah. Um, so uh, first on Facebook, I have a I have a blog called The Ragamuffin's Journey. And then I also have, which, which I have a Facebook page for that. Friend me on Facebook if you want, Chris Harmon. And then I also have a Twitter handle, which is uh, at The Rag Journey, T-H-E-R-A-G-J-O-U-R-N-E-Y. So those are the ways that you can find me right now. We're going to include links to all of your social media and your blog on the show notes so our listeners can find you there. Chris, thanks so much for your time. It's been such a blessing to talk to you today. All right. Absolutely. Thank you, Jason. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.